Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project is your half hour of commentary and analysis on the news media issues of recent days. I'm Rex Smith, the editor-at-large of the Times Union, with a chance to uh, moderate, we hope, with some skills that we didn't see exhibited in another recent public event. I'm here with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, with Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist, and with Judy Patrick, longtime editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady, now vice president of the New York Press Association. So we are here, and we are about to talk, of course, since our last show, we did have the first presidential debate, and we'll go around a little bit and say, what did we think about the moderator's work? Because we're talking about the journalism here. How did Chris Wallace do? Alan, you get to start off. Well, I like Chris Wallace a lot. I think, I think he did extremely well under the circumstances, and I felt for him. I really did, because, you know, you can't get around blabbermouth Trump and, you know, his philosophy of self-inflicted pain. So I'm a big fan. However, I will say that I didn't like the way the media covered it because in their attempts to be fair-minded, they kept saying these two guys talked over each other. And I saw that in several places, and I frankly didn't understand it because it was quite clear that that's what we call false equivalency. In other words, it was Trump who did nine-tenths of the interrupting, and yet the media insisted on saying, or a lot of the media, we all know that the media, before you guys can chide me, that the media is different, but I kept reading from respectable sources uh, that they talked over each other, and I didn't like that. Rosemary, you have a similar view well, or not? Yeah, there's no way that you can say Chris Wallace did a good job. In fact, he himself acknowledges he did not. I, like Alan, definitely feel for him. I think Geraldo Rivera said it best. The guy signed up to moderate a debate. Instead, he was refereeing a knife fight. Uh, he tried yeah. humor. He tried stopping the proceedings and chastising both of them, and nothing worked. And it was really a terrible debate. In fact, the Commission on Presidential Debates is now considering additional measures to help moderators control something like cutting off mics or holding the men in separate rooms even to do the discussion. On the other hand, Wallace's organization of the debate I liked. His questions were excellent. He really tried, and that's too bad. As for the interruptions, there's a report that there were 90 interruptions during the 90 minutes. Seventy of them were by Trump. So, as Wallace himself said, Mr. President, you're doing most of the interrupting. Yes, there was some effort at accountability there during the debate. So, Judy, if you were in his shoes, could you have done anything? <laughs> oh, I think a number of us have done debates, and it is difficult, but, I mean, this was a travesty. I tried to give Chris Wallace the benefit of a doubt. You know, 
I think he did ask good questions, but I find myself yelling at the uh, television more than once to intervene. And he set this up, and Chris Wallace set this up beforehand by saying, I'm going to be invisible. And so he's essentially signaling Trump that, you know, go at it. I mean, I think that gave the president a license to be the brawler that he turned out to be. There's no getting around the fact that this was just a horrible debate. I think the debate commission itself failed. Imagine if you were a teacher or a parent who wanted your child to watch this as an example of our democracy at work and civil discourse. I mean, what an embarrassment, what a travesty. And whether Chris Wallace could have intervened, I think I would love to see someone write a story where they interview teachers or mothers of toddlers who say, how would you have handled that differently? Because my husband was a teacher and he said, what you've got to do when you teach a class is you've got to seize control of it from the very beginning. And I think Chris Wallace didn't do that. And I think that's why things went off the rails in such a tragic fashion. I think you said something important there, that he set the stage for the problem by saying, I'm going to be invisible, by saying that it's not the moderator's job to fact check. And that really sort of signaled that this was going to be open season. TV really thrives on that kind of conflict, right? Chris Wallace himself in an interview said afterwards when Trump first interrupted and began to contest something that Joe Biden said, he thought, oh, good, we're going to have a real debate. But, of course, we know by now that that's not the way this president operates. Remember, Rex, Chris Wallace worked for Fox And that presents a problem in the beginning. And I take maybe a little different view as to why he said what he said, you know, about being invisible. I think he was setting it up to say, okay, you know, I don't want to be responsible for this creep, you know, doing what we all know he's going to do. And I'm not going to be the chief law enforcement officer here. Wallace made the same mistake that we all make when dealing with narcissists. We give them the benefit of the doubt that they'll be well-behaved, they'll be decent, they'll be considerate of others, and narcissists never are. And so what seems like a concession when Wallace gives him a little bit of extra time, Trump seizes as a weakness and proceeds even further to break the rules. And uh, it's a typical mistake made with narcissistic personalities. If you've ever worked for one, you know. Should there be a different accounting, though, of the Presidential Debate Commission of even collaborating with Fox News? I mean, Fox, which is Chris Wallace's employer, isn't there a mistake in considering it to be a valid news source deserving of having its anchor there as any other? This astounding situation with Fox and Friends, the president's favorite morning show, had Rudy Giuliani on making the point that Joe Biden has dementia. There's no doubt about it. You know, it's just baloney. Why anybody would pay attention to Rudy Giuliani makes you wonder. But because Fox News continually does this sort of thing, because Fox News downplays the pandemic, presents lies, I am concerned that we tend to treat it as a reputable news source when, in fact, it's not. Is there any way that we as citizens can do anything about that? Mm -hmm. I think that we should be concerned about the next two moderators. One is from C-SPAN, for example, and the other is a woman from NSNBC. I'm sorry, from NBC. 
and both are weaker personalities than Chris Wallace and have had less experience than Wallace has dealing with the president. If you will recall, his interview with Trump was one of the better talks we've had with the president. He held him to account. And it isn't Fox News that's disreputable. It's the Fox Channel overall. Fox and Friends is, is hardly a, a news operation. So I, I, I think that excluding them would be a mistake. It would play into the idea that um, we don't want to listen to both sides. Uh, we need to do a better job countering the poison of Fox News. It, it, it has more control over this population, I think, than some state-run operations in other countries run by, by dictators. It does, right. absolutely. We, yeah, we even have to consider whether or not these debates are a lost cause or not, even given – uh, even uh, even if we didn't have uh, Donald Trump as one of the candidates, they've become more uh, uh, or less appearances by the the two candidates. They're not debates. We, we uh, in the last four years, we really four years ago, we did get some discussion of issues. Um, obviously, this time we're not going to get any discussion. And this effort by the the presidential debate commission at this point to say they're going to invent some tools. I don't know what, you know, are they, is it a wrench? Is it a saw? Or, you know, is it a trap door? Uh, especially because of the president's people are saying, no, we're not going to change the rules. We're going forward with the format we have. I'm just thinking I would love to have seen instead a 90 minute interview by Chris Wallace of each of the candidates separately. I think the public would have been so much be better informed. But, of course, then the, probably the viewership would have been far lower than it was for this wrestling match we saw the other night. You know, I think we have to take a look at what's really going on here. you got a guy who's losing in the polls by from anywhere from 6 to 10 points. That's the president. And he knows that if he let, doesn't throw some kind of a Molotov cocktail into this mix, uh, he will lose. And he thinks, because he won the last time and because he's behaved so badly when he's president, that this is the way to do it. So no matter how you adjust the rules, he's going to keep doing it because he has no choice in his own mind. That's what he does. He breaks rules. His people love it that he breaks the rules. He's been a rule breaker since the day he stepped into the White House. So that's what we're going to see going forward. And it's just a shame to watch because debate should be a hallmark of our democracy, of how we work. And around the world, people watch it. And I almost thought that he was going to start throwing punches. It reminds me of a, a guy in a bar that tries to monopolize the bar conversation or start a fight. It was a real sad day for democracy. You know, in the media, what can we do to step forward and say this is not acceptable. I want to go back to one thing that I think we can do. We can say as journalists that it is a shame to work for Fox News. We mm. shouldn't have people who have journalism careers working for Fox News. You're right, of course, Rosemary, that these are opinion shows that we're talking about. Sean Hannity, Lou Dobbs, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram. But that's the primetime programming of the organization that's called Fox News. And one third of the country watches them, and they are, in fact, lying constantly. So we should make it uh, anathema for real journalists to work for Fox News. We should do what we can as journalists to shame those people who accept employment from that outfit and make it clear that this is 
like Breitbart, which is not yet fully accepted, but is getting there because the White House is giving him credentials, Fox News should not be granted in our journalistic conversations the same kind of appreciation. We should shame people for going to work for Fox News the same way I think people should be ashamed of working for the Washington Times, which is owned by the Moonies. This is not a reputable news organization. Nevertheless, nevertheless, as you point out so perceptively, a third of the country watches them. Can you imagine? I mean, and I have to say, and I wonder if Rosemary and Judy believe this, and that is the respectable journalists in this country already do call out Fox, and it doesn't mean much, right? I think you have a point because people tend to say, oh, you've got Fox on the right and you've got MSNBC and CNN on the left. And it gives a false equivalence because MSNBC and CNN can lean left. It's very true, but they do not lie. I mean, they they have real journalists and usually the opinion shows are based on journalistic search for truth. And in fact, the lies are deliberate. And I think going forward, when we compare like how one network compares to another, we should call that out. They're not equivalent. It's not balanced like it should be. The people who need to hear it are not listening to us. They're listening to Fox. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you have Hoax, a wonderful book that Brian Seltzer has written about the dangerous connection between Trump and Fox yes. News. That's really important. But who's reading it? It's people who already know this stuff. I think that's the biggest problem. Hannity, I watched right after the debate, and I'm horrified, not by the spin, not by the idea that, of course, they were going to call Trump the winner, but by the, I mean, this really was fake news. They took a series of snippets from the debate every time that Biden stammered or was slow and, and jumping to his point. The man has a stutter, as we know, and this is not uncommon. There's no indication of his intelligence or grasp. It has nothing to do with senility. But they took those little snips and ran them all together as if he had been like that through the entire debate. I'm sorry, that is nothing but fakery. That is dishonest. And I've not seen that anywhere ever of all the publications I read mentioned. That's what they're doing. This isn't just spin. It's actual outright dishonesty. Let me point out one other thing, too, that is interesting. Editor and Publisher, which is a trade magazine for journalists, did an informal study. It's just an anecdotal study. But in the week of August 24th, was their target to look at. That's a period when more than 1,000 Americans died every day from COVID-19. Here's what Fox News compared to CNN did in coverage of pandemic. During that week, Fox News gave 2.5 minutes of coverage. That is less than 1% of the 300 minutes it airs between 6 and 7 a.m. to that topic. CNN dedicated 42 minutes to COVID. That's 14%. So 1% of the coverage of Fox News goes to COVID. 14% of the coverage of CNN goes to COVID. And the only time that Fox gave more coverage to COVID when it jumped to, say, 20 minutes in that period was when Nancy Pelosi went to get her hair cut. That was what they covered. Nancy Pelosi got it getting her hair cut in a salon that was supposed to be closed. Boy, isn't that important. So I think that it is Fox News is a disreputable organization that intentionally squelches coverage that is going to look bad to the president, intentionally distorts coverage, as Rosemary points out, to make Joe Biden look bad. And I think we as journalists and you as journalism educators, you who teach, and certainly everywhere that journalism is taught, ought to make it clear that real journalists don't work for Fox News. So however good Chris Wallace has been as an interviewer, he shouldn't have taken a paycheck from Fox News. 
And I think we should make that a standard and just say, you know what, let's do what we can as a craft, as a profession, as a trade, as journalists, to isolate this pox, which is Fox News, and just not have anything more to do with it. You Sorry, know, that's my little self. Wow. Well, that's fair, Wrong. but but you know, but you know, Rex, I remember we used to have a real right-wing journalist who hung around here and who had tremendous sway. He was all over the place, and he would accuse everybody else of not being real journalists, like he was a real journalist. And I suspect when you say, "Okay, we're going to isolate you, Fox News," they'll do the same thing. You know, the, the thought about Chris Wallace working for Fox, the idea of maybe it would be better if he left has crossed my mind. But then I thought, much like the people who are staying working in the White House, well, wouldn't it be better if he stays there? Because he is a good journalist, and on his show he does ask good questions. But when he stays there, does it give them a credibility that is ultimately bad for the citizens? And he's not alone yet. Juan Williams, who is a, a fairly uh, liberal fellow, moving over there. And he was seen as maybe the guy who was legitimizing him by doing that, even though they allowed him to say something, but in contradistinction to what most of their people were doing. I mean, just consider that a little amount of time Fox gave to the New York Times blockbuster story about the president's taxes. They were talking about, I imagine, cats being rescued from trees rather than talk about that story, which was a blockbuster story that everyone needed to know about. And uh, broadcast news is, uh, is the primary way people get news, and they were negligent and not even getting into it this week. Fox News, similarly, hasn't paid a lot of attention to the president's refusal to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. And I think that's really interesting. That is a Mm -hmm. hard topic to figure out how to cover also. How do we we go about doing that? I think that Joe Biden gave a model for that. He's handling it. He's in a similar situation, I think, to the news media because he wants people to be aware of it. Uh, to worry about it somewhat, but not to be so paralyzed by it, but that they say, oh, it's not even worth voting. I'm not going to go out. And so he said he will leave. He will have no choice. And I think the media can do something similar in explaining all the mechanisms at play that work against Trump actually staying in the White House, even if he wants to. And by also warning about what could happen between Election Day on the 3rd of November Mm. and Inauguration Day on January 20th, what are the things he actually could do? And um, what are the protections against that? Um, Lots of research to be done on that and great reporting that could come out about that. Mm. You know, NPR warned, but not terrified. You know, NPR has been doing that. But you you are right, Rosemary. Um, I am concerned, however, that the news media knows a good story when they see one. And the idea that this guy, this horrible man, decides that, you know, he may not leave and says so. Uh, that's a story that they don't want to let go of. Yeah, and they should not. I mean, if if you listen to historians, uh, presidential historians are taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. If you talk to journalists in other countries, Marsha Gessen is a really good example. She's covered Putin for most of her life. She's saying it, too. When a dictator or an autocrat tells you something, he's telling it to you for you to listen to it, to hear him. And we should be paying attention to the story, but we also can't paralyze people with mm-hmm. it. Like, this is going to happen. Go out and buy bullets because there's going to be civil war. We, we can't, um, you know, I, I don't think we should be stimulating a civil war, but people should know that this is unprecedented. It's dangerous. Um, and we have to be ready for it. You know, into all of this yeah, comes I, into all of this comes the Proud Boys. And the question is whether or not 
we have helped that small group of thugs by taking them as seriously as we have in the news media. In fact, we've already seen pictures of the Proud Boys beating other people up, and then all of a sudden we see an arrest of a Proud Boy. And I have a feeling a lot of the things that the president says and does and his obvious support of the Proud Boys should be taken as very serious stuff. But uh, there's a question, when we give it this attention, do we make them into greater forces than they are? You know, I do agree that press needs to not panic to everybody, because I, I admit I've been panicked myself, but I worry that the initial um, coverage of the president's talk of not accepting the results was a little bit namby-pamby. People just considered it more of the crazy things that Trump says, and they weren't taking it seriously. The headlines weren't strong. I mean, the first day stories sometimes were played inside major newspapers. And I think we need to take Trump at his word. When he says he's going to do something, he tries to do it. And this is serious business. And telling the people what's involved and how things work is what we should be stepping up and doing. That's right. This is a very difficult situation. We're in the uncomfortable position of journalists being expected, in a way, to defend democracy against a sitting president who is seemingly potentially going to stifle it. This is not just business as usual, and we need to hold Republican officials to account, members of Congress, United States senators, these same Republican officials who say, well, of course, we're going to have a peaceful transition of power. We always have. (laughs) These are the same people who the senators at least swore up and down in 2016. They're not going to appoint a Supreme Court justice in 2020 if there's a vacancy. And now, of course, they are. So we know the credibility of the Lindsey Grahams and Mitch McConnells of the world, but we need to hold their feet to the fire about the question of what will you do as the president tries to undermine the integrity of the election. And I think the answer is they're not going to do anything. This is going to be an extraordinary situation that I think could undermine the confidence in our elections for a generation to come if this president isn't held to account for this. A very difficult role for journalists, I think. It is to defend democracy. The media is a bulwark across the world in places that don't have independent judiciary and police forces that work and a military that's not saddled to the government. The media is the one thing standing between citizens and autocracy. And so we need to step up to this. Yeah, we can do this. When you see someone lying, you say, no, that's not true. This is the correct information. You need to engage your neighbors and don't yell at them. Don't call them names, but point out when things are true. I mean, journalists especially, we have an ability to to research, to find out what's real and what's not real. Convey that information. Be mini reporters in your neighborhood, in your church, in your social gathering, although wear your mask. But (laughs) I think we can do this. That's excellent. That's, but that is difficult because, you know, I always tell people when they ask me why is there so much bad news, I cite the fact that my office for years has been right across from all the international airport where 100 planes land yeah. and take off every day, and we don't write a word about those nice, safe landings. But if one of them belly flops, yes, we're going to write a story about that. That is what news is. It is the exception to the norm. And fortunately, we live in a society where things are generally pretty good, so we don't write about those safe landings. But the fact is, We have had so much of Trump throwing up stuff into our past that we've kind of gotten inured to it. It's hard for us to write about all the daily Trump outrages because it's one after another. And yet 
we have right. to showcase this one, right? Right, and remember yeah. that when you do that, you play into his hands because clearly he's trying to get out of something else by raising even a more despicable thing to take you away from the way he handled COVID, for example, or any of those other issues. That's what he does. And Rex, I want to compliment you because I have been quoting you for years, saying to my students and others, as Rex Smith always says, one plain belly flopping. And so you've... <laughs> You've given us all of that. I guess that's right. I do use that phrase belly flop. Uh, planes don't usually do that, do they? Oh, well. But it's true. Alan, I use your line all the time about the Shartok theory of F-sharp, you know, yeah. that journalists know who to call to get a certain kind of a quote on a certain topic, just the same way you know that if you press that little black key on the piano, what that's going to sound like, that F-sharp. And so, you know, this is one of our little techniques. We know who to call to get the requisite quote to make the point. Is that just a good reporting technique or are we, is that a signifier that we are too lazy to develop new sources and or, go beyond? Or is it basically you're writing the story, you can't speak in your voice and you get somebody else to do it for you to put your point good across? Point. I mean, isn't that something that we kind of teach journalism students, that there need to be certain elements in a story? You need to have a comment on this point, and therefore, yeah. if you know who can do that, you, yeah, that too. you actually go out and get them? That too. Yeah, I've looking... have called up people and say, I need a quote from someone saying, and then I tell them what it is I need to hear. And they give it to you. And they say, well, yeah, I, I do believe that. I can give that to you. Or no, I'm not the person to give you that quote. It is an excuse not to develop new people, new sources. We are very guilty of that. But if they give it to you, it's because they want to be in the newspaper. <laughs> Say, okay, here's what I need. Okay, here's what you can have. And that way, I've bought my way into the paper by giving you the quote you want. And nowadays, the reporters have so little time that they tend to right. go back to the sources they know are going to answer the phone, are going to give a quote. They're not going to pursue a new source because it's going to take time. They're going to have to convince them to talk, and they're not going to talk in complete sentences. And that's the danger. You try to challenge reporters to find new sources, but... Nobody's got any time to do that anymore. And I don't think sources become sources because they want something or want to be in the paper, although Donald Trump may be an exception to that. It's because you develop a real relationship with them so that they know that you're trying to tell the truth about a particular topic or in a geographic area that they're interested in. And they actually do call you with tips and guide you and critique your stories and say, you got this totally wrong or that was great. Here's why. Here's what you need to do next. And that's a real source. And there are few enough of those in a reporter's life. It's the number one thing that journalists need to do is find sources beyond their friends and relatives, which is what journalists in other countries mostly rely on, just people they know and went to school with. One of the interesting elements that a reporter uh, worth her or his salt is going to notice is that once you start to quote someone, you confer credibility upon them. You Absolutely. elevate them. And you have to be very careful with that. You know, I remember as a young reporter covering neighborhoods, finding somebody that, that you would talk to about something who suddenly would then become the president of the neighborhood association because <laughs> that person had the credibility of being quoted in the newspaper. Anyway, well, we've just lifted the curtain on some journalistic practice. And earlier in the show, of course, we had commentary on the big national stuff, and that's all we have time for this week. So we're going to have to call it off. And listeners, if you have thoughts, media at wamc.org is how you can send us your views, and we're always happy to hear those and take them into consideration. 
Alan Shartok of Northeast Public Radio, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, longtime editor of the Daily Gazette, and I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union. We thank you for joining us. We thank our producer, David Gustina, and we hope you will come back and join us again next week on The Media Project. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people It could be prostitution, I don't know Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling Advertising, get those readers, get that payoff What a headache, what a mess Oh, publishers are such interesting people Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press